Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Mike Grinzer has made a name for himself in Berlin's techno world as one half of mastering studio Manmade Mastering, alongside his partner Tim Xavier. In addition, Grinzer also works at another renowned Berlin studio, Dubplates and Mastering. Born and raised in Bavaria, Grinzer acquired a deep interest in the technical side of electronic music after listening to the mastering process of his own early records. Since then, his ears have helped put the finishing touches to music on labels like Askotun, Plus 8, and B-Pitch Control, among many others. In this conversation, as part of the Lisboa Electronica Festival, Grinzer retraced his steps to the mastering studio and shared details on the process engineers take to get the best sound out. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please join me in welcoming Mike Grinzer. Welcome. Thank you for coming out. We're, we're going to get into mastering a lot today. And uh, for a lot of the people in the audience, um, or for people who are just interested in audio in general, it's sort of a black box. Um, and we have a lot of visual aids that we're going to project up here in a bit um, and go through the process um, as granularly as possible. Um, but before we do that, uh, I think it's important to know how you first got into to music in general before you decided to become a mastering engineer, especially. You know, what was your introduction to electronic music? Um, my introduction to electronic music was about the end of the 1980s. Um, I was pretty much like a, a rock guy before. I was into grunge music and Matani, Nirvana and bands alike. And at some point, I first heard um, electronic music from Chicago, I guess, from uh, bands like Future, for example. And I was quite impressed by uh, the sounds and the music, and I wanted to know um, how uh, this very new-sounding music to me was done. And um, that was like my starting point in electronic music yeah, at the end of the 80s, beginning to the 90s. And where had you been during that time that you were exposed to Future in the first place? Um, I was still living on the countryside, so I grew up in a very small village in the very south of uh, Germany, in Bavaria. And I was still living on the countryside, and um, yeah, I was going clubbing, and a friend of mine was, was, uh, was running a club, and I was um, hanging out there and DJing there, and it happened all there, basically, yeah. How quickly did you go from hearing future to DJing? Um, I was DJing before, um, how it was like, yeah, towards the end of the 80s. It was more like a kind of a crossover sound where you would go from uh, some hip hop stuff to rock stuff to electronic stuff. So it was, um, was quite a huge variety or a mixture of different styles of music. Was there a certain point at which you started to get into music on much more of a technical level as opposed to a purely musical one? Yeah, I was always uh, quite, um, or I was always quite technically interested, but um, when I started to produce music or get interested in how to produce um, electronic music, and when I was releasing my first records or 
tests, uh, cut on a dub plate to play it out as a DJ. I always tried to, um, to go to the studios, to go to the mastering studios and sit in for the session. And that's the point where I got interested mainly um, how, um, how music comes to, um, to wax. At the time that you were producing this music, were you still living in your hometown, or had yes, you? I was still living in my hometown, but then left um, quite shortly after. So, like at the beginning of the '90s, I landed in Munich um, and did uh, some studies there at the university, and got access to um, a quite famous club in the '90s, which was called Ultraschall. And uh, one of the owners of the club was also doing a record label. And more by accident, we got to know each other. And um, yeah, I had the idea to produce and release music. And then we found a home on that record label, which was called Disco B. And for people who might not be familiar, um, can you talk a little bit about what the sound of Ultraschall was associated with at the time? Um, the sound of Ultraschall was associated mainly to techno. Um, there were a lot of like international DJs booked to the club, like DJs from Detroit, uh, a lot of American guys and also people from uh, Austria. So the club had a relationship to, to the US, uh, to like underground resistance and the Detroit people, um, to the Chicago people and also in continental Europe to Vienna, for example, to Patrick Pulsinger and those guys. And you, you mentioned a lot of names just now and labels. How did you feel about the sound of the records that were coming out at that time? Um, again, not just from a musical level, but from a technical level. Were you already thinking about um, what are ways that this could be improved? Um, I guess, yeah, the, I guess the, the sound, especially in electronic dance music over time or with the decades from the 90s to the 2000s and to nowadays pretty much uh, changed. Um, in the 90s, it was like pretty rough. Um, uh, studios didn't have that much processing gear, maybe also not that much of uh, know-how when it comes to vinyl and, um, and, uh, and cutting. Why do you think that was? Was it simply because the knowledge wasn't available and accessible in the same way today? Or were people yeah, not interested in the way they are now? It was uh, accessible, but um, a lot of um, people working uh, in the mastering industry now, um, um, a lot of the knowledge is self-taught and it's not so easy, uh, especially when it comes to vinyl, to have access to knowledge because you can't go um, study these things. So you need to find um, people or mentors um, to show you things and um, I think back in the 90s a lot of uh, people transferring music to, to discs, um, a lot of the knowledge they had was self-taught or uh, adapted from some mentors they had. Who were those mentors for you? For me, those mentors were like in the 90s when I was producing music. Uh, the first one was also by accident uh, Tobias Neumann. Um, it happened that we um, had a studio together with him or he had a studio and gave us his uh, vocal booth as a small production studio. And um, when I got doing my first mix downs, he showed me a couple of tricks and skills. And then later on, when I started um, my mastering career, uh, my nowadays partner, Tim Xavier, um, showed me how a cutting system works, um, showed me how 
to transfer music. And um, at that time, um, he brought over, um, so Timmy is a, an American guy, and at some point he moved his studio from Brooklyn to, um, to Berlin, and he owned an American um, cutting system, a Scully Westrex uh, cutting system. And I first learned on that system, and then later on, um, I met um, Christoph uh, Grote Beberborg from uh, Dubplätze Mastering, the owner of Dubplätze Mastering, and he l later showed me how to cut on a on a Neumann uh, VMS 70 system. And uh, I know that looking at those photos that you brought, we're going to get in a bit later into some of the differences between the Neumann and the Scully that you're describing. Um, but I think, uh, as we've been talking about mastering so far, we haven't answered the very basic question, question excuse me, of what is mastering? And why should I, or why should someone who is just a regular consumer of music care about mastering? Um, so, um, very basic speaking, mastering is the bridge between production and duplication. And, uh, the bridge between a production, recording, mixing studio and the world out there. Before music gets released, it gets mastered, uh, it may get transferred from one medium to another medium. And um, the master media, we do at the mastering studios, be it um, a lacquer disc for vinyl manufacturing or a data set for, let's say, CD production, gets sent to a pressing plant, and the pressing plant replicates the master and duplicates it. Um, the second part of your question, why should someone um, worry about mastering? Um, mastering is also um, the last technical and uh, also the last creative step in music production. And in mastering, we make sure that um, music translates well to um, different listening environments and different playback media. And the, ma the better a master will translate, um, or that will also help sales, I guess, um, if you have a good sounding product in the end. I'm curious, would that answer you just gave me have been the same as when you'd first started out as a mastering engineer, or were you approaching it very differently um, during the years when um, you'd first started working with Tim Xavier, or when you were first sort of getting your feet wet and sort of acquiring that knowledge? Yeah, in, in the beginning when I got into this, um, I just basically started with digital mastering and everything else came later. Um, I think you first have to um, gain some knowledge, you have to get a feel um, what's possible, what's not possible in like 70 to 80 percent in mastering, you work um, with left-right stereo sums. So you don't have access to individual instruments of uh, recording, but you work with the stereo sum and with you apply um, processing to, um, to a full mix down, then little things can go a long way. So if you adjust something in the frequency domain at one part, it has an influence to a totally different part. And um, every engineer, um, I guess, has to find its own paths, its own ways, and 
gain his own knowledge uh, on on how to approach uh, music and uh, how to apply processing. Um, can you talk about what some of those lessons were for you, though, when you were first starting out? Because I think mastering, as you're describing it, is the sort of thing where there's this balance of the formal education of, of you know, uh, maybe learning from someone directly and informal of actually sitting behind this, this lathe or uh, the processing chain for when you're mastering something and sort of learning on the job. Yeah, I think, um, well, um, I think it's very important to like educate your ear um, in a technical manner, but also in a artistic uh, way. Um, you need to learn a few lessons, um, I think, to um, to gain some intuition on how you start working on projects. Because if you get a collection of recordings, um, it, sometimes it can be um, the recordings were all made in one studio by one band or one producer, and then it lands with you at the mastering studio. But it can also be like a collection of very different things, like a compilation, for example. And you need to get a feel um, where to start and where to land in the end. Um, just now you mentioned this balance between the technical and, and the artistic. Um, what is artistic about mastering for you? Um, so I think it's very important if you work on music, uh, you treat music of other people to do it in respect of the musica musicality of the music and also of the emotion um, of the music. And you have to, to get a feel for it, um, what would the band or the producer um, mean with a recording? Where does he want to go with it? Um, is the recording, the mix down, is it done well? Or um, does it lack um, different aspects? Uh, and was the producer able to fulfill his idea with his production, with his arrangement, and with his mix down? Or does it need some help from like an objective ear as a mastering engineer? Because as a mastering engineer, um, um, you get the music and you hear it the first, very first time. And this allows you to lend the producer and the musician like an objective ear and apply uh, processing accordingly. So you have to find out or you have to find um, a balance between um, benefit and sacrifice, I would say, because um, every processing step is not necessarily a benefit. It's first of all, um, a sacrifice because you add processing, you add a little bit of noise, every processing step um, has to be done right in order to achieve a good result. How much have uh, what the people who are sending you these records to be mastered, um, how much of what they want out of the mastering process has changed in the last decade since you first started out? 
Mm. And, and what are some of those things, uh, what are some of the factors contributing to someone asking for something completely different out of a record in 2008 for what's possibly the exact same genre of music yeah. versus the same record in 2018 or something very similar? Yeah, I think nowadays um, when it comes to records, for example, a lot of people expect their record to sound like a CD. Um, with, what do you mean that? What do you mean by that record sounding like a CD? Yeah, with um, as less artifacts um, as possible. Um, when it comes to vinyl, the thing is that the quality of the playback from outside to inside um, changes pretty much because the distance um, shrinks towards the inside, which makes it uh, more and more difficult for uh, playback system and the cartridge to read um, the information. Um, regarding electronic music, for example, um, the, how the energy is distributed throughout the frequency range in the range of hearing from like 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz changed pretty much. So records uh, from the 90s um, um, didn't have much information below like 70, 80, 90 hertz. Nowadays, bass drums are rather um, around 50 hertz. Is, and is there a reason for that, like a shift like that specifically? I, I, I think it's a, it has a lot to do because um, back in the days um, when you wanted to record a record, um, you needed um, to book a studio, um, um, probably um, on a daily basis, which could get easily quite expensive. Um, with all um, the new um, technical possibilities um, regarding recording with computers, um, different DAWs, it had a pretty much democratic influence on how pro music is produced and how music is, is mixed because nowadays it's easy, accessible for everyone to get a computer, to get a DAW, to get a couple of plugins and produce music. And back in the days that was much more difficult and you a lot of the bands and musicians needed bigger record labels who could afford to book those studios how has consumer expectation also impacted your work then because the, um, i just asked about what yeah, the producer hard, wanted but yeah, what about it's, 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 someone it, who's just it, listening it's hard to say because um some musicians and some producers um expect you to just apply a little bit just to enhance the music um, with transparent processing while others um, expect you to change their sound, to transform the sound with deep processing. And you have to get, a, uh, as a mastering engineer, you have to get a feel um, what is necessary with the project or recording you have at hand. But, but for the actual consumer, say if someone is, um, someone's in the last 10 years, their listening has changed from, uh, from CD to streaming and then to vinyl and then back to streaming. How does the different avenue, particularly when it comes to something that's uh, relatively new for a lot of people like streaming, affect what artists want of your mastering to compete in that sort of field? Mm, I don't know whether, um artists um, think that much about it. Um, I think it's um, 
our profession also to train people. And what I do nowadays um, is very often delivering different sets of masters for different platforms. Um, so um, when music gets released nowadays, it's very often released on different media, let's say vinyl, CD, and digital media. Also in digital media, there's, um, there's a quite big difference between um, online distributed music, so files, uh, be it MP3 or WAVE IEF for people to download, or streaming services. And um, nowadays it's quite um, difficult to spread the information um, because when people release music, um, they have distributors and distributors have different aggregates to place the music at different streaming platforms or download shops. And spreading the information what master is for what platform can get lost and can get quite, um, quite difficult. Um, so, and I think it's up to us engineers um, to train people and uh, to spread the knowledge about what is best for what medium. In terms of, of what's best, are there particular things that you see people constantly misinterpreting? Um, I'm thinking in this case of something like loudness. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the problem is um, that um, still a lot of people ask for very loud files because they think if someone um, searches for music online or at the record shop um, that it's an argument to buy um, a file or to buy a record if it sounds louder than other stuff. To a certain degree that is true and that was always existing. It already existed back in the 1950s uh, when music was played on the radio and um, suddenly there was a song on the played on the radio which sounded louder than the other songs and that's always um, an argument for listeners uh, and consumers to buy this. But um, a few years ago it reached a quite crazy um, amount of loudness and people still ask for a quite high loudness um, but then it's also up to us to train people and tell them that it's not always a, um, um, a good idea because excessive loudness uh, implies problems on playback. Um, um, at club sound systems for example um, um, amplifiers, um, speaker cabinets uh, start distort, start to overdrive also when music is played on the radio and when music is streamed online, um, almost all streaming platforms have loudness correction algorithms built in. And um, what, what do you mean by that exactly? So it's an algorithm which measures the loudness of all the songs which are accessible and matches it to, um, to a certain loudness, which can have uh, an influence to the sound and also um, the frequency balance of a recording. If you master very loud, then if the music is streamed, then the algorithm will measure that 
change the loudness and also uh, the frequency content. So you'd be sacrificing dynamic range in the mastering step to yes. reach a point that is going yes. to be enforced yes. against you by a streaming yes. service anyway. Yes. And the thing is that for streaming platforms, the, the loudness is um, minus 14 um, loudness units. It's a different measurement uh, compared to peak or RMS. And um, music distributed online for people to buy files, um, the loudness is much, much higher. So um, I find it a good idea to either see whether your client um, is willing to step back on loudness. And if not, you may consider to do two different sets of masters. How frequently do you find that clients are actually amenable to these objective recommendations that you're making? I would say most of my clients um, have an open ear for that. And I'm not asking you to name names. <laughs> Good. Um, I think most mastering engineers also have their, their style, kind of. Yeah? It doesn't mean that I always have to print my, my Grinzer print on masters, I, I do. But some just like it a little bit louder, others like it a little bit lower. Um, some want it a little bit more, more low end or more high end. So masters can be different. And if you do this for some time, um, producers and artists, musicians, pick their mastering studio and the mastering engineer. Just by, for example, going online on Discogs, uh, you can have a look what engineer mastered and cut what record and what release. And um, this is a quite good resource for people to uh, find out about preferences of, of the engineers they work with. Or you could also come for an attended session, which I would always recommend because you get an insight um, what happens at the studio, what happens in mastering. Um, you can also get a feel for whom you work with. And um, like personal connection um, is always a good idea when it comes to uh, releasing music and uh, mastering music. Just to go back a little bit, um, talking about individual mastering engineers having this sort of signature, um, were there people who, when you first started mastering or when you first started getting interested in it, um, that you studied through their records without actually having access to them? Um, I like back in the 90s when I was re releasing my music, um, I pretty much knew where I, where I wanted to go um, because I was always like a music collector um, and l listening to a lot of different kinds, different styles of music. And I had an idea where I wanted to go and whom I wanted to work with. Um, and maybe you also have to try different things and it's at one place or with one release, um, you find the perfect match. Although mastering can also be quite expensive depending on what studio you have and you know, it's more difficult for people to actually reach that level of, uh, first of all, getting someone to sign your release to believe that it's something that they want to sign and put money into mastering and then get multiple more that people are willing to give you a shot at different studios, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, mastering takes up some time and takes up some studio time. And um, if 
or how our studio uh, is built of the philosophy of our studio is we work on other people's music and we want to do the best or to, we want to have the end result to sound as good as possible. And um, this means um, you need to build up um, a processing chain, you need to think about acoustics, monitoring, and run, just running such a studio um, costs some money, and so we ask our artists and clients um, to pay for the mastering. Sure, I mean, work's got to be paid. And um, yeah, but on the other hand, we also take parts of that money and just reinvest it in the studio to make things better and improve things. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see in people who are sending you files for mastering? It, you know, um, what, what would I send you that would really frustrate you? Um, it can be different uh, things. Um, so first of all, um, I find it important that um, you leave a little bit of headroom when you record music. Um, so for us, as mastering engineers, um, we, when you work digitally with a DAW, uh, we measure in dBFS, meaning dB full scale, digital full scale. And I would recommend to leave a little bit, little bit, little bit of headroom, which would be around three to like six dBFS peak headroom. Um, you should also um, work on a sample rate which is at least the sample rate of the final medium. So in case of a CD, that would be 44.1 kilohertz. Um, you could also work higher. Um, then it's a good idea if you, for example, use double the uh, sampling rate of the final product. So for, in case of a CD, 44.1, you could use 88.2, for example, or for, um, for film, uh, music, music videos, it's 48K, you could use 96. Um, this way you don't have um, rounding issues, so if you want to go from a sample rate of like 96K down to 44K, you would have a lot of uneven numbers and in the conversion. And there's good converters, um, but um, rounding or rounded numbers will always um, or can have rounding artifacts um, as a problem. Um, then, if your music is um, centered to a rhythm, it's uh, important that um, the rhythm instruments are not phase-reversed, so all the rhythmical instruments, be it percussion, bass drums, snare drums, are correct regarding their polarity. And why does that become an issue for you? So a signal with um, right polarity, you will have a positive waveform followed by a negative waveform. A positive waveform, if things are connected in the right way, in the proper way, uh, a positive waveform um, would cause a speaker cone to move uh, to the outside and the negative part of the waveform uh, will let the, the cone uh, move to the inside. So, um, and that can have um, uh, influence on punch and impact, for example. 
Then regarding um, the frequency range, um, it's also a good idea if the individual instruments in a recording are dynamically controlled in a good way because um, when several instruments play at the same time, um, they have an influence to each other. So um, one instrument can modulate or mask the other instrument. And um, when you control different parts in the frequency domain in the right way dynamically, um, you will have less masking and modulation artifacts. Um, sometimes, especially when it comes to vinyl, um, it's a good idea if you have your high end as controlled as possible, because in cutting, um, most problems come from excessive high end or from, um, from sibilance, be it hi-hats, crashes, S phonemes in vocals. Um, the thing is that if you have sibilance or S phonemes in vocals, which are too strong, um, it's a sawtooth, sawtooth waveform. And sawtooth waveforms are very complex or can get very complex. And um, it can be a problem on playback. So a cutting system is always superior compared to a playback system. And what we call um, vinyl distortion is not distortion coming from the, from the cutting process, but from the, from the playback. Um, then another thing um, to watch out for is a controlled low end. Um, so it doesn't get muddy and the instruments in the low end, like bass line, bass drum, low toms, congas, stuff like that, um, are separated well. The low end is not getting is not getting muddy. Yeah, I think that's it's a lot to keep track of. Yes, we're probably still just barely scratching the surface. But uh, still, yeah. I, I want to thank you for coming out today and you know sharing all of your knowledge about mastering. And uh, I think it was probably uh, very illuminating to the people in the audience as much as it was to me. So thank you, Mike. Thank thank you thank you. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. Okay, enough URLs for now. Thanks for listening.